focusing on like the shortness of life, I think is really good for most entrepreneurs because there's so many opportunities out there to make money. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Travis, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Well, I happen to be lactose intolerant, but there is a vegan ice cream out there uh, company. It's called Van Leeuwen's and their chocolate ice, chocolate ice dessert. Incredible. Best, yeah. better than most actual real ice, ice creams, in my opinion. So I was walking down the ice cream aisle the other day. First of all, like our Publix has a whole aisle dedicated just to ice cream. So it's fantastic. Wow. But I'd never even noticed they have like vegan, they have paleo, they have no milk ice cream, they have no nut ice cream, like all these different ice creams out there. And I've always wondered, like, what do those really taste like? And it sounds like you're a fan. Uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's, you know, they've come a long way since I realized that I was lactose intolerant, but because they were pretty crap at first. Yeah. But uh, yeah, definitely uh, Van Leeuwen's is the best. And then uh, we have HEBs here in Texas. So HEBs got some non-dairy uh, versions now that are really good. Uh, they're getting real close to tasting like they're supposed to. So when, yeah. Uh, what is it about HEB? I, I just have to ask, because I lived in Austin I mean, for a little bit. People love HEB down there. And I'm like, it's just a grocery store. Like, it's all right. It really is just a grocery store. I don't know what the uh, the the whole... Uh, you know, cult followings about, honestly, I don't like, they have a lot of things that you can't get otherwhere elsewhere. Like they have their own like barbecue lines and stuff like that. A lot of their generic or the HEB brand stuff is really high quality. Whereas like most stores, um, you know, the, 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 the grocery store brand might be kind of a crap. Um, HEB tends to have really high quality. They actually have three versions. They have like Hill country, HEB, and then uh, I guess central market would be the other one. Yeah. I mean, it's not like a Bucky's though. Bucky's is overrated. Oh, get out. We're in the uh, interview. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, like nice, nice bathrooms. But other than that, like they don't even have Sour Patch Kids at most Bucky's around, around these parts. That's because so. Sour Patch Kids are disgusting. <laughs> Man, that's all rough. Right, all, right, all right. That's well, rough. Wow. Tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah, uh, so I, I own a, a boutique a private investment firm. We we purchase and build um, self storage facilities all across Texas and in Oklahoma. Uh, we we tend to structure those through a syndication model. Uh, we buy uh, somewhere around twenty to thirty million dollars a year, and uh, looking to turn that into eventually hundred million dollars a year. It's just kind of hard to grow in this environment with uh, eight and a quarter percent prime uh, rates. And who knows what values are because who knows what cap rates are. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, before we get into self-storage, tell our listeners, where'd your real estate journey begin? Yeah, I bought my first house in 2012, uh, right after we moved to uh, where I live currently, which is Waco, Texas. Um, it went really well. I, I rented it out before um, my first mortgage payment was due, which is good because I was, um, I, I was going to have to borrow the money to make the mortgage payment. So um, it was great that I rented it out. Uh, typical uh, entrepreneur there. And then we bought a few more and things went really well. Then we kind of learned how to to really buy uh, uh, at volume and market at volume. And so we were buying straight from banks. We were buying at the foreclosure auction. We were buying through direct mail or direct, direct to consumer. And, uh, and man, it just exploded. We were buying somewhere around 80, 90, 100 houses a year for a good Whoa. three to five years. 
Whoa. Uh, you mentioned buying from banks. What year was that? Uh, that, that was 15 through 18, 2015. Yeah. The better deals are in 2015. You buy them in bulk packages of like 10 or 15. And, you know, like one or two sucked and the rest of them were like home runs. And then towards 18, it was like eight or nine of them sucked. <laughs> yeah. And one of them may have made you many. That was basically the difference. Yeah, I was going to ask, because like where we are in the current market, do you see that strategy becoming more apparent now? Because I think people have kind of moved on from that strategy since like 2016. It seems like, I guess a better way to put it, it seems like those banks are selling them off to BlackRock right now. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I, it hasn't moved on. There's just one or two or three. This The models right. change from the bank. They can sell 10 to, 10 to you, 10 to me, or they can sell 1,000 to Blackstone in a in one transaction that's taking that's over in 60 days or whatever and one person manages that whole thing or maybe a handful of people but like the, the manpower is a lot less um i i don't and then as far as like where we're going i i don't think we're going to have um if we have foreclosures i think it's going to go to black black blackstone i think the uh gone are the days where you have you know you know a three to 15 page long you know foreclosure list uh, i don't think that's ever going to come back uh, just because of CFPB laws, Dodd-Frank laws, that sort of thing. Yep, yep. So when you scaled it to that uh, that level, what was that like? What were you doing with the homes? Were you taking them and flipping them? Were you wholesaling them? What did that all look like? Uh, you know, we we tried to wholesale as few as possible. And a lot of that was because we were committing, we were say, telling, um, you know, especially the, the direct to homeowner uh, side of the business, we were saying, hey, we are not going to sell this to another investor. We're going to fix this up. We're going to bring back your granddad's legacy for building this house back in 1940 or whatever and we're going to sell it and that was a big selling point that we were going to actually uh, renovate it and sell it ourselves um a lot of the bank on stuff we we had to take it down so we were we were taking we were putting we were we were having deed of trust filed on those so we were renovating those as well foreclose um you know the foreclosure auctions those were those were uh, about the same. So we typically only wholesaled when we needed to get cash kind of in an emergency situation or in a, you know, we can't make payroll, which, you know, or I didn't really like wholesaling. The wholesaling in Waco, Texas was you could flip it, renovate it and flip it, and make 30 to 40 grand, or you could wholesale it and make seven. You know, at the time we were doing it, I think that changed after we stopped um, just because the market just got so hot. Everybody wanted a house flip. And so everybody was overpaying for stuff. But when I had it, and I, I, and I wasn't going to over, I wasn't, I wasn't going to oversell a property to somebody knowing that they were going to make money that just didn't allow me to sleep at night. And so, um, we were primarily just flipping and, and, and that obviously ended up getting us in a pickle. So I got two ways I want to take this conversation, but before we start, the first question in my mind is like, where do you get funding to go do that? Were you taking private money? Were you taking bank debt? What did that all look like? Yeah, for the bank loan or for the direct to banks and the foreclosure auctions, we were getting uh, private money. We had uh, we had a really nice office on the twelfth floor of a famous building that overlooked pretty much the entire downtown Waco area. We had all of our, even though we had we ran everything on like Google Drive, we had all of our houses on a whiteboard on purpose. That was kind of a marketing thing. I would bring in investors that had you know IRAs that had two hundred grand to a million dollars. I would take them out to eat somewhere really, really Waco-like, something that was only in Waco. And then we, we would I would talk to them about what we did. Uh, and then I would bring them up to the office and they would see everything. They would see that everyone working really hard. And it was always, it was a pretty easy sell. No one ever said no. And then we were offering like 10, 12%. So uh, right. generally speaking, like most people are like super excited to be a part of a something like that. 
Yeah. Was it a fun model though? Or was I individual? No, it's individual. individual like, Hey, Hey, Hey Matt, do you have 150 grand for the steel? Do you have, you know, we had, we had a couple of, for the foreclosure auction stuff, we did have a group out of Dallas that was like committed, um, you know, a certain amount for us. Um, and you know, and then, but most of it was just like dudes that had a little extra cash that want to invest alternatively. Yeah. What, knowing what you know now, would you have done anything different from a financing standpoint? Like, would you have structured it in a fund or would you have gone still single investor, single asset? Yeah. One thing I didn't mention is, is we had a lot of the direct and consumer stuff where you would use banks. Um, if I were to have to do it again, I would probably raise a fund, like a, uh, like a debt fund. Um, well, let me, if I was to, if I were to do that model of buying really low income crap, I would do a debt fund. If I if I were to have to get back into buying single family homes, I would only I would raise a very large sum of money and we would only buy class A products because class A stuff is what appreciates. And really, like you make some cash flow in real estate, but the appreciation is where you make where you get rich. And so got it. Got it. Well, my second part of that question or in this part of your phase is really around operations. So scaling a business that does one home is pretty easy. If you'd start doing 100 homes a year, that's a pretty big daunting task. What did you learn through the operations and building out, out, out the operations process? Uh, single family homes are a very hard business to scale and, and make money at. That's that's probably the conclusion that I learned. Yeah. But ultimately, you needed uh, needed a handful of people. You need an operations manager to manage all the, these following uh, positions: construction manager, uh, disposition manager, uh, transaction coordinator, which could also be the disposition manager, depending on how much is going on. Um, we uh, our disposition and transaction coordinator would list the houses, and uh, when we needed to sell a house, would reach out to investors to sell through wholesale. Uh, then we had a, a you know, fractional CFO, and then we had a, um, a acquisition guy that was, would typically would be me and another guy. Uh, the other guy, I would always, my, my goal was to always beat the other guy <laughs> just because of my competitive nature. Um, yeah. That I didn't always, he was getting all the leads, but I was like, I know how to find these deals. And so, um, so yeah, that's, you, I think you can run it with uh, five really smart people those people need to make a lot of money or you got to pay those people a lot of money because they need to be really smart. Uh, we chose, uh, we had some great people work that work for us, but um, I think one of the biggest failures we had is we hired a pretty low grade construction manager and that needs to be the highest paid position in your business because that is where you, uh, if you have a $40,000 budget and you go $60,000 or you go 20,000 over that budget, that means that 20 grand is coming out of my pocket. And it, because we can't find it, we can't go to the bank and say, Hey, we need another, need another 20 grand or to the private lender. We need another 20 grand. And also if that happens, normally your margin, uh, so your profit to pay everybody, a limit goes away. So, um, you know, that's a good construction manager can really work with the acquisitions team on communicating like, Hey, well, this is what this is going to cost. This is what we do in every house. The painting is now this price, you know, that would be need to be like a monthly, if not every other week, uh, meeting to really understand how, um, understand the cost of how to, how to, you know, uh, how to figure out the rehab budget, that sort of thing. Um, we didn't do any of that, but if I that five years ago, if I were still in business or could do it again, that's probably how I would do it. Got it. Got it. You made a comment that single families are really hard to make money at. Why, why do you, why'd you say that? 
In in general, uh, the the uh, person that's buying your house is is looking to make a uh, emotional decision on if they want their kids to run around in that house or if they want to throw parties at that house. And so your house might be great. You might renovate a really great house, but the house right next to it's a piece of crap, you know, uh, like the house that needs to be renovated or a house that has track usage or something like that. Uh, then now all of a sudden that 250 grand house that you think you're going to get because you're looking at a MLS sheet, a map, and you're not actually paying attention to that house, that 250 grand house, you're actually probably going to have to sell for like 220 and that just affects your margin. Then you're borrowing money at 10 to 12%. And so, um, if it does, if it, if you, if it lasts, if your budget, I mean, if your renovation goes longer than three months and you budget for a five month sell, so three months of renovation and two months sell, but then it takes six months to do that, and then it takes three months to sell. Then you're you're all you're four months off your your uh, your your numbers, and you still have to make that payroll every week, uh, no matter what. Because if you don't, the Texas Workforce Commission is going to come after you. <laughs> so, yeah, yep. no, I, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I scaled sure. my single family portfolio and then moved into commercial, and that's one of the things I found difficult was the choppy nature of single families. Um, when you're looking at it on an appreciation standpoint, typically people are emotional one, but also looking at the house next door and what did it sell for versus what can this property actually do from a business standpoint. Um, last comment on the this whole fixing flipping era of your your career here is um, one of the things that I typically find out is like people get into real estate wholesaling. And then once they get into wholesaling, they get into flipping. And then once they get into flipping, they start holding a couple properties. And then once they hold the couple properties, they start getting into bigger assets like commercial. You followed a, a similar journey. Um, why do you? Why is that? Why do you think people kind of navigate through their uh, real estate journey yeah. that way? Wholesaling is dipping your toe in the deal. You then you sell a few, you make 10, 15 grand, you get really excited. And then the dude six months later tells you that he made 70 grand on that deal. You're like, what? I made 15. I could have made 75,000 bucks on that deal. And so you start thinking about that. You're like, I could do a lot less deals. I could hustle a lot less and make the same amount of money or make more money if I just want to keep the same amount of hustle. So then you get into flipping business and then you start realizing that, man, this is hard work. Like you're trying to figure out why the plumber didn't show up and you're trying to make Miss Margaret's uh, two o'clock appointment to buy her house. And you're like, I am so worn out. You're like, well, how about I hold on to some things? Um, because you can get cash flow from that. And so you buy a few, you you hold on to a few things that gives you cash flow. Then you realize that the cash flow sucks on single family homes because things like HVACs, uh, H, uh, HVACs hot water heaters, plumbing, sewer lines, walls, house uh, appliances, um, grease fires, uh, murders, suicides, <laughs> uh, pest control issues, uh, roofs falling in, all of that can happen. And you're like, man, that $300 a month that turned into $3,600 a year in cash flow um, is gone very fast. And then, um, you know, and then you're like, this sucks. What's a better way? And then you like, you find us, find someone who has a really nice life doing commercial stuff. <laughs> and the economies of scale are in the commercial side. And you're like, well, I'm just going to do that then. And then there's a lot, there's still problems in the commercial side, but you have, the economies of scale, you have for, forced appreciation as opposed to comparable market appreciation or market appreciation. And, and that makes all the difference. Brilliant. Brilliant. So that led you to self-storage. Um, first of all, you, you were in the single family space. You obviously knew about housing, multifamily, 
Um, you saw self-storage. Why did you choose self-storage over the other different asset classes out there? Well, fascinating enough, as in the single family business, I remember meeting a buddy that was in self-storage. I'm like, man, you were, dude, you're, this is a dumb business. That's all that concrete. You're going to have to pour it, all that metal. That's expensive stuff. And who's going to keep the crap in there? Well, it comes out like everybody, everybody keeps their crap in storage. And so Americans do not like to throw things away. And so, um, yeah, I got into storage because I realized kind of the whole, you know, timeline I just gave you guys uh, about my journey there or the typical journey. Like, I just realized, like, I got to find something that has a really low default rate and a, a really low failure rate and a actual real good cash flow mechanism. And uh, because the thing is, like, I, I lost a huge amount of money in 2014 on a deal. Then in 2018, I, I had to fire my staff all my staff, you know, on one day because I was out of money. And then it took almost two years to get out of that. Um, I was like, I, if I'm going to build wealth, if I'm going to reach my goals of wealth, I've got to find another asset that allows me to get to that. And that's essentially what I found in storage. Cause I looked at multifamily. I'm like, well, I've owned some multifamily and it was a disaster. Uh, I've looked at a few other things. I mean, I, mean, I just, office just seemed like it was going away. Retail seemed like it was going away. I'm like storage, seems that most of it's owned by mom and pops mom and pops get old enough to sell uh, there's probably a lot of opportunity to buy a, a bunch of storage there um and so that's essentially the the quick and dirty of of how, why I, I wanted to get into the self-storage business got it and today you develop and buy what, what do you do today yeah, so we own uh, seven existing facilities. Uh, so, some of those are fully repositioned, and we're just living off the cash flow on those. Uh, two, two of them, um, we're we're heavy, uh, heavy value add right now. We're about to start about uh, an expansion on a smaller one, and then uh, then we're building a, a very large Class A institutional grade facility in uh, in Austin, well, in the Austin metropolitan statistic area. So uh, the city is Georgetown. It's basically a suburb of Austin. Yeah, right north of Round Rock. To the left of Round Rock, north yeah. of Leander. All, but all of those are like the same town, you know. It's like a bunch of all, all like people that don't want to live in East Austin or downtown Austin, just like starting a family as they move up to Round Rock, Georgetown, hoping for a slower pace of life, basically. Yeah. So you have an interesting model on how you do your development that you were talking about. So talk to us a little bit about that project and how you're doing your development. Yeah, it really depends. It really depends on the on which uh it really depends on several things on the uh the deal that we're doing on the small uh, pro project that drive up uh, i you know the, basically the aisle drive up uh, storage units instead of pouring instead of getting an engineer to charge us 50 grand to replat everything um, or to, to drop everything instead of having to deal with the city we are just putting we're, we're doing the dirt work basically making sure the water is going to drain really well and then we put these uh they're called box well units and we put them right on right next to the existing facility they're the same color as the existing facility and within uh you know by this time next month i'll be, have another 61 units running out uh, and we haven't even started the dirt work yet that's how quick we can get them so the dirt work will be two weeks and then they just ship the box wells they push, place them and they like kind of fold up and then they're right next to each other and they're all next to each other so they look like you you know they look like a pretty good they look like a brand new storage facility. I we won't do that like in Georgetown or the Oklahoma one we have, but this one in the small town in Texas that we have, it's going to be perfect. And you know, on those, the great thing is, it's not affixed to the ground; it's just sitting on the ground, so it's equipment. So the city 
doesn't require you to have a permit for that. You don't have to do all the engineering work for that. You don't have to. So you're saving tons of time, some, you know, tons of money, but just by just doing it that way. So it doesn't sit on a slab at all then? It, it sits on a, pa- uh, a a watered and rolled pad. You can do slabs if you want, um, but just doing the, uh, like it's basically crushed concrete and then you like roll it with a, a weighted roller and you drive over it. It's basically it's basically concrete at that point. Um, it ain't going anywhere. And then you put the, the the building on it. Got it. So when you looked at the economics of this, what did that cost to buy that and put them on versus build? Yeah. So each unit, I think was like 8,200 bucks. So you could get a 10 by 20 for $41 or two 10 by 10s for $41 a square foot. Um, that's shipping, uh, erection, all that stuff. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we can have, and then it only takes a month. Whereas the timeline for like the engineering bill, just the, the, the cost alone at the time we were doing that, uh, at the time we were trying to make that decision, uh, we were looking at 48 to $56 uh, for a 10 by 10 unit or a 10 by 20 unit. And we're like, wow, we can just, that's going to be a six month build. So we got to hire the, it's going to be a lot more expensive too. We have to hire the engineer. We got to design it. We got to move all the dirt. We got to put the, or lay the concrete. And then we got to build the facility. Um, and so I'm, for me, I was like, man, it's not only am I saving money per unit, I'm also like cutting five or four to five months out of the the time that it takes to build this thing. And so uh, we can, you know, start making, you know, paying distributions a lot faster than if we were to build a, you know, old school style uh, drive up facility. Yep. Yep. Now, why did you not do that on the other facilities? A lot, a lot of it depends on the, the clientele. So this, this okay. specific facilities in a rural area in between two big cities, uh, south of DFW, and then, uh, and so it kind of fits because we're just going to be storing people's ATVs and their lawn equipment and, you know, that sort of thing. Maybe the Christmas decor, um, you know, the other facilities in Edmond, Oklahoma, which is like one of the, it, 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 one of the nicest areas of Oklahoma city. Um, it's also an RV and boat, so it didn't really fit. Um, we could certainly put box wheels on that facility, but we have plenty of like vacancy there so we can we don't really need it at this point but um as far as georgetown goes that's a climate control three-story you know climate control facility that will eventually be owned by a reit and so um you know that's the highest grade you can get looks kind of it looks more like a hotel and it does a storage facility and so um that's why we didn't use it at that location but generally speaking you can put it anywhere you want it um and rent it out there's you know because the city isn't going to permit or not permit it so yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Are there di- any differences in permitting or is it easier to put it up because you don't have to go through the permitting process? 100% easier because it's it's considered equipment as opposed to uh, real estate. And so uh, so in addition, given that Texas has super high property taxes, it also is not taxed. That portion, that, that square feet will not be taxed. We'll probably have to hire an attorney every year to tell the appraisal district that that hey this is equipment not real estate but but it is um we will lower our taxes so then if you think about like a a typical self-storage uh facility margins or i mean operating costs are 35 to 42 percent now that we're not going to have an increase in property taxes we're probably going to skinny that up to closer to 28 percent and we're hoping Gotcha. And then on the tax side, this isn't tax advice uh travis and i are just people talking on the internet don't sue us all that kind of stuff but from my understanding, operating equipment can also be depreciated on a 15-year schedule versus like a 39-year schedule in commercial real estate. Are you going to see some of those tax benefits as well? 
Yeah, our our cost seg guys mentioned mentioned that it'll it'll be good that we're using that as opposed to uh, as opposed to you know building it out. So, gotcha, <clears throat> gotcha. That's awesome. Well, um, one of the things I found interesting in your um, research of you is how entrepreneurs have personal stories that kind of affect their business life. And um, we were chatting a little bit before the show about how you view risk and kind of unwinding the business. And before you jumped into this, how you took a different role beforehand, just kind of reassessing your life and risk. Could you talk us a little through uh, a little bit through that? Yeah. Yeah. So as I previously mentioned, you know, that my first deal, I didn't have any money and, you know, I barely was able to get it bought. Uh, if I wouldn't have rented that out, I would have been in default the first month of owning my first piece of real estate. Um, you know, that, you know, we made some wins in 2014. We, we took a, we bought a luxury property in a different city, ended up being a, a well into the six figure loss. I, I remember telling myself, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta stop playing around and get real serious about this. And so then that's when we started just sticking around the Waco area and buying. Um, and then in 2018 kind of things got tight. Um, again, just because we were just growing too fast, weren't paying attention to risk. I was okay with having four or five grand in my bank account at a time, just stuff that I would never think about. Not when I say that, I'm like, that sounds so ridiculous. And so, and then, then, uh, as we were unwinding that business in 2020, when COVID hit, I had like two or three months left and I'm like, this is not going to be good. I'm not, this is going to last forever. The last recession last three years, this one's going to last for a long time. What am I going to do? And so I think I just went through so many experiences that I realized that life doesn't have to just be this big stress ball of never having money. It can actually be something very, very, you know, prosperous and enjoyable. Um, so in 2020, we moved moved to a, another part, another house. We sold all of our real estate to kind of hope to cash in uh, on the next what I was hoping would be a, a fallout, or I was kind of thinking of a fallout of, of real estate. That didn't happen because the CARES Act. But um, as we continued to get through 2020, the guy that married me and my wife, him and his wife, died in a car wreck. And I was like, I just remember sitting down in a uh, in my chair in my 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 bedroom, and I'm like. I've got to figure this out. I've got to come up with something where if I die suddenly, you know, I can get, I, my kids are going to be fine. My wife's going to be fine. Or if my wife and I die at the same time, the kids are going to be fine. Well, two weeks after that dude's, uh, or after that guy's uh, a funeral, like uh, my, we were on coat, we had got exposed to COVID. So we had to get tested. We were waiting for results. We got our results back and um, they were negative. And I was like, Hey kids, let's get in the hot tub. And so turn the hot tub on. It takes about an hour to get warm. I was, uh, we were waiting. I had a very, uh, we have a, a very hyperactive at the time. We had a very hyperactive three-year-old and she was like, put my, put my uh, bathing suit on. So I put her bathing suit on. I was like, stay right here and I will go get my bathing suit. And then we can get in the hot tub together. Well, she didn't stay right there. She actually went outside. I was, uh, at the time I was like, where'd she go? Like, I'm really frustrated. She didn't obey me. I walked out. I couldn't hear anything. And then, uh, I was like, well, she had been playing in the backyard anyways. I was just thinking she, maybe she was around the pool cabana. And, uh, and unfortunately like what I found is she was actually in the hot tub at the bottom of the hot tub. And and that just shocked me. Uh, and and I grabbed her. I screamed for my wife. She was able. To, my wife's a registered nurse. She was able to uh, perform CPR and saved her life. And then the and then the paramedics came and uh, took her to the hospital. She spent four or five days in the hospital. I held her hand the entire night uh, because I felt like it was my fault that she had went out there because I kind of 
had put her bathing suit on. That really changes your life. Um, that takes you from a place of like, man, I've gone through some hard times to, to like, I never want to experience this ever again. Not just this specific drowning incident. My, my, by the way, my daughter is fine. I didn't mention that part. She's <laughs> young and healthy. She's great. Uh, super grateful. Still rainbow um, shits. Yeah, so yeah. Um, and then, and sorry, I realized I didn't say that and I side my track myself. So ultimately what happened is we had, it took me and my wife about 12 months to get over, to not get over that, but to get over the trauma of that. And so because of that, the way I think about risk is completely different. What I want in every single one of our deals is I want 12 months of li- of mortgage payments. So if all the tenants it's storage. So no one ever leaves, or if they did, it's, we still can pay our bills, but I want 12 months of reserves. And then I pay myself when we do a syndication, I pay myself a fee to make sure there's money in the account in case I, something happens to me, my family's okay. And then we have the 12 months of reserves in case something were to happen to me, my and partners are okay. And then every single deal we do, I have an, I have this, um, they call it an assistant GP and it's someone that doesn't have ownership. Uh, or it's an assistant manager. They don't have ownership, but they do know it's my attorney who gets it or one of my attorneys. And so he knows if I die, he has control of all my, all my facilities and he can, he can logically and slowly sell it to make everyone whole as opposed to just everything falling in, in complete chaos and everyone, everyone getting really stressed out about their money and my family might be getting sued from that, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah. So yeah. that was intense. Yeah. A, <laughs> a lot of intensity there. Um, I think our listeners might know, but my sister actually passed a couple of years ago and it mm-hmm. happened in the middle of the night and she was mentally disabled. Um, so mm-hmm. no parent should have to bury their child, let alone happen in your own house, especially if your child has already had a tough life and being mentally disabled. And I just right. remember at that time, it kind of compressed life for me. Like you always hear the stories of like, you only get one life and life short and you know, whatever, but until it happens to you or someone you really care about, then it really kind of puts into perspective. And so I think that's made me one more motivated to go pursue this idea of financial freedom, whatever it is to anybody that's listening out there. But then two, to try to figure out what, what do I enjoy in life and how do I do more of it? Because chances are not even chances are there, there's a good probability that you won't get to experience those at some point in your life. So you should go do that now. Anything you would add to to that assessment or just thought process there? Yeah. During COVID, I I started reading a lot of Ryan Holiday's stuff and Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of quotes. I can't remember all the sources of the quotes, but but, you know, one of the things I've kind of learned from all that on top of everything and then then also my own experience is Thinking about death isn't a bad thing. It's not a morbid thing. It's not a dark gothic thing. It's it's a it's a real thing, and I think our generation hasn't had a lot of like major catastrophes in the sense of wars or you know actual deathly plagues. We that probably up for debate, but um, but yeah, there's this what we like. I'm 37. I've got hopefully I got like 50 years left, right? You know, my all my grandparents live really are still lived a really long life and uh i was like well surely that way i eat i'll live a little bit longer but at the same time like 50 years goes by so quick i just turned 37 last year and i'm about to turn 30, 38 in nine days you know and so like and i'm like i still 
have strong memories of when I was in middle school and in sixth grade and in high school and in in college. And it seemed like yesterday that that happened, but it was actually 20 to 25 years ago. And focusing on like the shortness of life, I think is really good for most entrepreneurs because there's so many opportunities out there to make money. Do you want to make have the opportunity that helps you reach your goals that aren't business related, like, you know, family, uh, you know, uh, extracurriculars, traveling a lot, that sort of thing? Or do you want to do the 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 business that will make you, you know, $100 billion, but you'll never be able to spend it in your entire life? And so, and, and we'll take all of your time, 12, 13, 14 hours, mm-hmm. seven days a week. I remember reading about Bill Gates still work 12 to 12 to 15 hours a day for seven days or seven days in a row or seven every day he would work 12 to 15 hours including sunday and he had been doing that for 20 years and it was just he was married to he was living for microsoft he was married to microsoft and so instead of just jumping into a business and being like this is what i want to do it's like well will this business serve me and then um, and then where's my level of like, I'm going to stop when I get this much cash flow, especially for a real estate investor. Like, will I stop when I get this cash flow? And then I'm going to spend a month or two in Lake Tahoe and then two months in Palmetto Bluff with my family. And then I'll spend the rest of it in, in where I, you know, where my personal residence is. Um, that's those, those thoughts I think are way more important than uh, how much money you can make, I guess is. What, what what do I what what's the business I need to start that allows me to live a lifestyle that really serves me and ha- it gives me really ha- good happy thoughts that my kids want to come home after they leave uh, my house and my wife doesn't want to leave me for another man like what business is that yep. that's the business I want to be in yeah it's interesting you said that because I was having a conversation with uh, my partner the other day around basically you know I I feel a lot of momentum brewing right now. And I've got a number in my mind that I want to be at. And when I get to that number, will I be successful or not? Will I be happy or not? And I already told her, I'm like, I don't think that I will be. So I need some check and I need some support and helping me along the way because I don't want to be that person that gets to my goal that I have today, two years from now, three years from now, 10 years from now, and be upset that it's not more because I'm looking around at other things. So um, how did you, how do you, how do you talk? How do you think through that? How do I think about like, what, what, what's a good goal to get to? Well, just making sure that when you get to a goal, you're satisfied and not always looking for more, you know? Cause I, I think you're, you're probably driven like me to where you're never yeah. satisfied, you know? Well, yeah. And that's, that's, that's the challenging thing. There's the ambition and there's the drive. Uh, there's a, you know, and then there's, and then there's shiny object. I would say those are good things, ambition and drive and focus focus on goals and then there's the shiny objects in there like i'm gonna do everything um for me it's really coming down to i want i i don't want to do something that's going to i after my daughter's accident i became acutely aware of my emotions it's like i i know when i'm overstressed i know when i'm you know i can process a lot of that's probably the therapy went through is we had to learn learn like how to what are we dealing with here um I would say I don't want to be in a place of unregulated or chaotic stress for longer than four weeks. And then if, and that's like, a that's a long time. That is a so, long time. So like, if that's the case, the next four weeks will be me mountain biking or just 
send the kids off to go to school then going back to bed and sleeping or watching sports center in the morning until i feel like i'm at a place of peace and regulated um and that's really the focus and that's my i guess my uh, thermometer of like am i doing too much is if i'm if i'm stressed out and if i'm yelling at people you know if i'm impatient then something's off in my life and i know i need to regulate that because there's so much more than just making money like making money isn't easy but it's easy compared to like making sure you have a great great relationship with your friends and your partners and your wives and that sort of thing um so that's i tend to just like if i'm unregulated then i will try to eliminate whatever is like we have a deal we're working on and i'm like super stressed out and i'm a i'm I'm a a jerk to people then i'm like okay something's going on here like is this really worth it or should i just cancel that and go do some stuff that i actually know that i can get get funded and get done and that sort of thing yep yep interesting well travis fantastic conversation i want to switch us now to our last round we're calling this the five toppings our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's giving you a paradigm shift yeah, going back to Ryan Holiday's books, um, obstacles the way, egos the enemy, still is the key. Those I feel like rereading those books over and over, or listening to those books on Audible changed my life. It gave me a different operating system on what I was run, uh, what I was running on, and I I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, I uh, I found stoicism through Holiday, and uh, it's interesting how it can change your mindset. One hundred percent, yeah. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and things you do every day. What are some of the habits that you have every day? Yeah, so um, I tend to wake up. Uh, I have four kids, and so it's kind of a slurry, uh, kind of mild chaos in the morning. Um, get them to school, and then I do uh, I do yoga, and then I typically read uh uh, you know, daily dad. Well, daily dad just came out. I just got it. I this today. Uh, that's a Ryan Holiday book. Um, I typically read daily stoic. Stoic, and I'm going to start reading daily dad. Um, just kind of like one chapter, and then you know, get ready, head up here, and then uh, we. I tend to stop around three. If I if I don't have anything going on, I'll just mount, go mountain biking. Um, typically, want to have lunch with a friend. Uh, I have found that like having lunch with a friend that isn't in my industry is really good because I just I get to unwind and I, I and, and really I'm a big relationships guy, so I want to know people. And then around three o'clock, I I, I kind of wrap things up. And then if I don't have a podcast, and then uh, then I then I head out uh, to the park and mountain bike. And so I know there was a lot of I said mountain bike a lot, but it's really basically an hour. That's my exercise. Like I, I don't I, yeah. I'm not a gym guy. I can't. I'm just not going to go to a gym. So I just, you know, ride really hard for an hour or two and then go home and cook dinner for my family. So nice. I, I'm a cyclist, so I appreciate the uh, mountain bike reference. Nice. Um, our our third one is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, geez. Um, uh, to, to, yeah, it was from an old investment banker that had been very successful, like very, very successful. He, he goes, uh, Travis, you're a tiger. And you need to stay in your territory. If you get out of your territory, that means you're in some other person's ti- uh you're in some other tiger's territory and he's gonna eat your lunch. So stay in your stay in your territory and that you'll be successful if you just stay in your territory. I like that. That can uh, help you stay away from all the shining o- object syndrome that we face. One hundred percent. Yeah. Um, our fourth one is what is the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Um 
I would say being a dad, uh, you know, I've always, it was something I always wanted to be and there, there was a way I wanted to be a dad um, that I didn't feel like I had growing up. And, uh, you know, and then given some of the stuff that has happened in my life as a father, um, it's uh, I really I I can't I, I don't like going to conferences. I don't like going to real estate masterminds anymore because I just miss my kids too much as, you know, and my wife. I miss my wife, too, but I really uh, miss my kids as well. That's funny you said that. I left a conference early the other day and everybody was just like, that's a quick trip. Why are you leaving? All that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I just want to be there when they wake up. Yep. And this yeah, will get me there at least when they wake up. It'll get me in late tonight. Now we'll not see them tonight, but they will be. I will be there when they wake up. Yeah, hanging out with my kids is way more important than trying than hearing the same crap from a different person at a mastermind over and over. That's yeah. how I feel it. And it took me a while to get to that point, but I just I'd rather stay at home. Yeah. Well, our fifth and last one is: if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be, and why? You know, it, it would probably be George W. Bush, and, and I'm not that conservative of a person. I just really like the way that he thinks about things and the way it's for the most part, like post post presidency. Um, but, you know, good Texas guy. He doesn't live too far from me or his ranch isn't too far from my house. And um, and I've just always it's something I've, I've always wanted to have a cup of coffee with him to ask him a few questions. Not really about politics or about office or anything, but about like business and about the oil industry and about owning the Texas Rangers and all that stuff that, you know, I grew up going to the Texas Rangers games when he, he was the owner. And that's just, I don't know. Some, I think it would just be neat to talk to someone who's had so much success in life. Um, and so that's, that he, would, that's who I would pick. He could probably teach you a thing or two about painting these days too. Right. Like, exactly. Yeah. I, I think the uh, humility of an ex-president to pick up painting and post-presidency and then like publish it out there knowing that you're not Picasso and things like that. I mean, it's good. Don't get me wrong. Like I could yeah. never paint the way he does. I think it takes a lot of humility for that. And I kind of have a lot of respect for him for that. Yeah. And, and that's the, and that's the thing, right? Like he, he was a, he did not have to, he was kind of the man pretty much anywhere he went because just given his last name and uh super successful. And now he's like, well, I'm just going to paint. That's, that's yeah. my last thing I want to do. My Magnus album is to paint. Yeah. So, yeah. Just like that. Well, Travis, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to learn more about you or get connected with you, where is the best place we could point them? Yeah, there's two places. Um, I spend a lot of time on Instagram. Uh, we we post uh, videos on social media a lot on that uh, platform. The My handle or whatever it's called is at Travis underscore Bauckham, B-A-U-C-O-M. That's how you spell my name. And then um, if you want to check out some of our deals or learn learn more about store, the storage industry, uh, go to investinstoragedeals.com. Perfect. We will link those in the show notes. And then Travis, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Appreciate it, man. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.